0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa.
1: Imagine that you are the parent of a child who you think is sick, but no one believes you. And every doctor reassures you, even though the evidence of that illness is obvious to you, and to some that you have consulted. The diagnosis is only made when the child is 15 years old. Here to tell her extraordinary story is Gay Grossman. Gay, you're very, very welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you.
1: I want to start our conversation from the point of view of you as a family. You as a family, pre-1998, which is the date that is really important in the story as it unfolds. Who were you as a family and what were your hopes and aspirations at that time?
2: Well, my husband and I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. We were both self-employed. I had started a business a year ahead of time so that I could organize my life around my children that were to come. And we were very excited about having a family we'd been married for 8 years and we had planned so that I could work part time and and be home with our kids
1: so pretty much typical of anyone at that point in their lives then in 1998 something happened that changed your lives forever i'll let you tell the story
2: Our daughter was born in 1997, and about a year after she was born, so you're accurate in saying 1998, we started noticing that she was not making her milestones physically. She wasn't pulling up in her crib. She was very good at rolling, but she wasn't very good at pulling up on things. We'd seen her do it once or twice, but it was obviously very challenging to her. And I started asking questions about her physical development when she was about eight months old. I very quickly found that I was to take a wait and see approach, which I wasn't very comfortable with. And I continued to explore different options, different doctors, and finding out if I could do any kind of test to find out why she was perhaps not keeping up with the other children that I was seeing the same age.
1: What were those interactions like with healthcare? Were you given the impression that you were being an anxious mom?
2: Yes, I was absolutely told that I needed to be more patient. I was told not to compare to other children. And I was even told to bring my husband to appointments because I was overreacting.
1: Your daughter was eight months old, did you say?
2: Yes. The first time I actually have it on paper uh, she was eight months old. She had her first ear infection, and I had taken her back for a follow-up on the ear infection. And I just happened to mention to, to the pediatrician, I just said, you know, she doesn't really appear that she likes to sit up. When you would put her on her bottom, she would look like she just preferred to lay back, and, and she could use her hands very well to turn a board book and to manipulate things in her hands. But she didn't like to sit up and I asked about it, and they very quickly pulled out the Denver study and went through it and checked everything off. And I've since learned that they really start at that age to look at how a child eats. And if the muscles in their mouth are working properly, then they'll have you wait longer. And that's exactly what happened to me. Everything that my daughter was doing was typical, except for the gross motor and the trunk control is really where she had the challenges. And so you didn't see the challenges if she were on her feet and she was trying to walk between two things, and she could, at least if she could hold on to something, she would be okay. So there was a lot of activity that she was doing that would make you convince yourself that maybe perhaps something was not wrong.
1: Something was not wrong, as opposed to that something was very wrong.
2: Right. You could. I remember going to the doctor and asking specific questions, and I would be very happy when they would say, well, she is doing this, this, and this, and she just has to catch up on that one thing, so perhaps we just need to give her some more time. 18 months is when you're really late to walking, and she's 8 to 12 months, so you just need to wait a little bit longer, but Now that I look back, I know that there are so many different diseases and there's so many different things that have to be assessed. And when you have a child that's under two years old, it's really difficult to do that. She wasn't sick per se, like she wasn't, you know, having seizures. She wasn't having difficulty with anything else. She wasn't colicky. It was just that she didn't have the gross motor skills that other kids her age did.
1: Tell me what it was like as a family at that time, because you were clearly will have had or you clearly would have had interactions with other parents, with family. Were you sharing your concerns with them and what were they telling you?
2: Yeah, I was definitely sharing it with other people. I was reading a lot. I felt like 95% of things were going well, but this 5% was really heavy on me as a parent. And I was asking a lot of questions and i even switched pediatricians 3 times because i felt like i just wasn't getting the answers that i wanted and i'm not the kind of person who is going to wait and see so if i think something's wrong i'm going to keep asking questions and i'm going to keep asking other people so that's exactly what i did i kept taking her taking her to different doctors finally took her to a friend of mine and by this time she was probably about 16 months And I took her to a friend of mine who is a physical therapist. And I said, you know, I'm concerned. I would really like you to take a look at her and what she's doing. And she immediately saw what I saw. And she took the time to call our clinician. And I was able to get a a neurology appointment and get an MRI. And at the end of that, I was told by the specialist, I told you so. Nothing's wrong. Her MRI is normal. And it made me feel better. Of course, I wanted to hear that she was okay, but I still didn't believe that she was okay. I still knew that there was something that was not quite right. And by the time she was 17 months, that's when she started to develop the movements that were very slight and happened very far from one another, months apart. But Just seeing one of those, I knew something was not right.
1: It intrigues me that you changed your pediatrician so many times and that you'd followed up and saw a therapist and then a neurologist and all the rest of it. With the benefit of hindsight, you know that they couldn't have made the diagnosis because this is what you were dealing with was a rare condition. However, could you have stayed with one of these pediatricians had they given you the space to be concerned? Was there any circumstance in which you would have said, I would have stuck with that person if they had simply said, there's something wrong, we don't know what it is, but we will stay with you until that moment when it becomes evident to all of us what that is?
2: Yes, I think the first the first clinician we had was a family doctor, not a pediatrician. So he was very helpful in getting us to that first neurologist. He was willing to make that connection for us. And I believe between the two of us, we had a conversation where he said, I I think you need to go to a pediatrician so that you'll have access to more specialists if if you need. The first pediatrician I went to, I, I, did, I did leave because she didn't take it seriously. And by that time, the movement disorders had increased and she couldn't see them. I took my daughter to her when she was having these movements and she didn't take it seriously. She told me I needed to be patient. Tests had been ordered that were supposed to come back in six weeks and it had been nine or ten weeks. And there was no sense of urgency. And that's why I left. I can't see that I would have stayed with her because our personalities didn't match, and our our sense of urgency didn't match up at all. And I don't know that I would have stayed because I don't think I don't see her ever saying to me, "Let's just wait and 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 see, and I'll I'll hang in there with you." I think there's something wrong. She was not there was there wasn't any sense of urgency on her part, and there was very much so on mine.
0: You're listening to the Health Design Podcast with your host, Moyes Jiwa.
1: And the reason I asked that question is because there will be many who will be listening today who will not have the diagnosis and will come to the diagnosis that you, you, you finally arrived at, but who will have other concerns And what I'm keen to understand is how does healthcare respond to people when mom is not comfortable with what's going on? And how can we build that relationship between mom and healthcare provider that stays with her whilst we figure out what it is that's happening in that situation?
2: Well, I think so many of these conversations go back to education. So, if a parent is educated now, like today it's going to be a completely different conversation than what I had in the late nineties. There you know we didn't have genetic testing like we have today, but I think if a a pediatrician or a family practice doctor can sit down with a family and explain genetic testing and the things that are available today and and how to get the genetic testing and then say you know i will continue being your your primary care doctor however let's add someone to the team let's add a geneticist let's add a genetic counselor and then spend some time with them so that they understand genetic testing and genetic testing is so complicated you have so many panels you have people hear about whole genome sequencing and whole exome sequencing and there's really so much to learn. And, and remember, when I was doing this in the late 90s, there was not the Internet. So I was very dependent on what I could get my hands on at the library or we were connected, obviously, to the Internet. But I don't know if anybody remembers just like the time that pages would take to load and the information that we would get would just be so elementary or even when we would connect with a, with a very sophisticated institution, their websites just weren't developed to give us the information that we needed. So today's, I think, is a different conversation. But the education that families need today around testing and making sure that they get to a genetic counselor so they can find out what kind of testing is available. And there's so much testing available now that's free because there are programs You know, working with your health insurance company to get a case manager to find out what kind of testing you can get. And I think that this education about testing doesn't just need to be with families, but also with physicians. There's no way that anyone can keep track of all these programs and the testing. There was actually a time that I tried to find out all of the different companies and panels where ADCY5 could be found on a genetic test. I quickly learned that it's ever-changing and you will never have an up-to-date list. So we just keep on our website the free test that's available to test for this disorder that people can actually print out the form and take it to their clinician or their genetic counselor and get it ordered.
1: You've said some things there that are critical. First, that the internet has changed everything in the sense that we now have information much more freely available not only to healthcare providers but, and most importantly, to patients and patient advocates. The second thing is the idea that clinicians have the insight to realise that that has happened and that they are no longer the repository of all knowledge. In other words, having a high index of suspicion is probably as much as you need to have and then working in partnership with your provider with the other healthcare providers and with your patients to arrive at a diagnosis rare disease is not as rare as it appears because in fact one in seven people have a rare condition so this is a very common dilemma in healthcare now that you're dealing with somebody who has something that on the face of it is rare but in the community of rare conditions is part of a wide spectrum of things that have changed the way that healthcare now responds to patients. Now, let that one percolate in our minds as you tell us what was the diagnosis? How did you arrive at it? And what happened next?
2: Well, so we spent 15 years going through a lot of different testing, and it was invasive testing. We did things like um, nerve biopsies and muscle biopsies and skin biopsies, MRIs, and all kinds of other tests. We had actually done every test that was available. We ran out of tests. And I had heard about whole genome sequencing, and I'd heard about the genome being mapped. I remember Lily was very young, And I remember thinking, I wonder if we will have to do that to figure out what's wrong, which is what happened. We were able to get Lily into a study that was testing people who had been through every test that they could and they still didn't have a diagnosis. And part of the study was getting whole genome sequencing. So we did get the diagnosis through whole genome sequencing before it was available in the general public. She was 15 years old at that time.
1: And what was the diagnosis?
2: There were two genes. The variants are ADCY5, and the other one is DOC 3 It's D-O-C-K-3.
1: And what is the pathology?
2: It was called ADCY5 facial dyskinesia because there was one family that had been associated with this genetic variant, and they had a facial twitch. My daughter, her full body's affected. She was the first one to be diagnosed with that. So they changed the name of the disease to ADCY5-related dyskinesia. And dyskinesia is a movement disorder. And so she is much like a, a person who is affected by cerebral palsy in that she does not have a cognitive component to a disease, but she's physically affected. She was originally diagnosed with cerebral palsy when they used the phenotype to diagnose her.
1: We started this conversation talking about where your family were pre-1998. So what happened as the years unfolded? How did that impact on you as a family? What, What happened to you in that environment?
2: Like I said, we were living in Cleveland, Ohio, and we had gone through the institutions that were there, the healthcare institutions, and were not able to find answers, although we had a very, very supportive neurologist, and we actually still keep in touch with him. But we knew we were at the end of our options. This is when Lily was six years old, and we decided as a family that things were going to be difficult. The diagnosis had been moved from cerebral palsy to mitochondrial disease, and then it was undiagnosed mitochondrial disease. And we just kind of knew that we had this diagnosis that was something that could be pretty traumatic. We knew that it could be a shorter lifespan, And Lily had developed symptoms that were much more severe than when she started out. So the movement disorder had increased. The movements had become more severe and more common. So they were happening every day and every night. She was not sleeping through the nights at all. She would have painful movements all night long that kept all of us awake. We had to shift our nighttime so that my husband and I took shifts and I would stay up with Lily closer to the morning. My husband would take the night shift, but we would basically, someone would be with her most of the night, and things were very very difficult we were both running our own businesses and we were really tired we were ex- we were exhausted we were all three of us were exhausted and we couldn't go on vacation because you can't take your child somewhere that you know when they're crying all night and Cleveland has a lot of snow and Cleveland has a lot of humidity in the summertime. And we found that we were spending most of our days and nights inside, no matter what time of year it was. So we decided to move and it's very difficult to live in a place with snow with a walker and a wheelchair. And Lily would use her walker and her hands would always be all chapped because of the cold, because she couldn't wear mittens and hold on to a walker. I just remember thinking this is going to be a very difficult life and we need to make a major change. And we really, you know, I I don't know if people understand how small your world gets when someone in your family is suffering from a disease like this. A lot of people feel that COVID really changed their lives because we all had to be inside and we had to order our groceries and we had to keep each other safe and, and away from one another. And I I feel like when COVID came around and we were doing all of that, I thought, my gosh, I remember living like this when Lily was a baby. I didn't have time or energy for anything other than the business I was trying to keep going and, and this whole new business of trying to find a diagnosis for Lily and taking her to therapies and doctor's appointments and testing. And the care was... 24 hours a day and I really was still trying to keep her life going as typically as possible so keeping her in school she she excelled at school immediately she loved nursery school she loved kindergarten she read early she really thrived on being with other children and so we would be up together all night and then in the morning i would say to her you know why don't you just stay home and we'll have a quiet day at home and and she would cry because she wanted to go to school and be with the kids you know when you're so tired that you shake that's how i would be but for some reason she would be able to go to school with a smile on her face and she loved being there and she would come home and she'd spend the rest of the day on the couch because she'd be so exhausted but that's what she wanted and so that's what i kept moving and i kept her I kept her in school because that's where she found success, and I wanted her to feel that success.
0: The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health.
1: Here you had a child who had needs that You'd met, but you were meeting at great cost to you and to your family generally. How was healthcare responding to you at the time? Were you seen and were you heard with all of this difficulty?
2: Well, like I said, we had a very good neurologist and a very helpful neurologist when we were in Cleveland. I do a lot of public speaking, and I've done public speaking starting when Lily was in the sixth grade when I was asked how do you keep her in typical schools and how do you figure out these accommodations? And as Lily has grown up, the, the uh, topic has been changed that I've spoken about. In the past couple of years, I had a company ask me to come and speak about my experience as a mother and what it was like for me over the past, it was, you know, at that time, like 23 years. And I will tell you that that was the most difficult talk I've ever had to write and the most difficult talk I've ever had to give. I don't think I looked back at that. Like I didn't look back when I was going through it. I just kept moving forward and I just kept making sure that Lily had what she needed for that day and the day, the next day coming. And I didn't look too far into the future, but I think if I look back now you know, with the things that we were really working on and struggling with, we were just so tired. We were just so exhausted and living off such little sleep and really just getting by. But that was the reason that that was the impetus for us to move across the country. We now live in California and we moved when Lily was eight years old. We decided to move when she was in second grade because then, she, you know, we'd we'd had the experience of her being in school all day. And what she needed and what kind of support she needed. We had just dealt with the weather for so many years. And we really, my husband and I really knew that this was all on us and we needed to do what would work best for us. And we figured it would be easier to live in a place that felt like vacation and to provide an environment where Lily could be outside because it's cool enough where we live that she can be outside. And Just knowing that her life could be abbreviated, we wanted her to have the happiest life that she could have.
1: What about you and your husband? Who was there for you?
2: By the time she was eight years old, we'd seen 45 specialists. And I never had anyone ask me how I was doing until I had an oncologist because I was diagnosed with cancer and they asked me what kind of supports I have. And how I could reduce stress in my life. And by that time, Lily was in seventh grade, and I had not been asked by any of her doctors how I was doing.
1: That is a dreadful indictment of the system. How can we not make that mistake again?
2: I don't, I think every time I would take Lily to the doctor, I think it was just the spotlights on her the focus is on her there was never any conversation about what was happening in our home and what was happening all of a sudden i had not only did i have a new baby i'd never had a baby before but now i'm taking her to four therapies a week and i'm running a business and i don't know i mean so much of the advocating that i do now is to help mothers who are so young and i often about that. It's the families who are getting these diagnoses, especially now because of genetic testing, they're getting them earlier and earlier, which is a great thing. However, I don't think that as a society, we're remembering that these families are really young. So not only are they young people, but they're young marriages and they're young grandparents. And no one has experience with this. It's a very life-changing is putting it mildly. I think if people think about when they have a new baby, how overwhelming it is in your home when everything's typical. And then if you think about if you have an elderly parent that you're trying to adjust your family to care for, think of how overwhelming that is and all of that is normal. But imagine having a new baby and you don't know how the medical system works. And you don't know where to get information. There's no community built around disease. This is no news. It's a very lonely place. But it's also a place where there's just no clear path. And I remember when I was diagnosed with cancer, my, my husband said to me, we can do this because there's a path. Like this has been done before. And I And I have to say that It's true. Like you go and and they say, this is your diagnosis and these are your choices and here are the treatments and this is what we're going to do. And these are the doctors you're going to see. And everything's just kind of laid out there. I just had to show up. I just had to do what they told me to do. And luckily, because I do think it's kind of luck, I was okay. And I was given the opportunity to really take a step back and look at the way I was living my life and admit to the fact that I really needed help to take care of Lily
1: where did that help come from
2: well my mother moved into our house for four months and lily's aide from school would come every morning and she would get lily out of bed and she would get her dressed and she would take her to school and i had a home nurse come to our house every night to help lily take a bath and i mean we really just had to adjust everything and I remember, you know, Lily being really upset because I was hiring a nurse, but I had to explain to her, I'm hiring this nurse for me, not for you. I don't know if that made her feel better or worse because she depended on me so much, but I couldn't lift anything for a year. I had multiple surgeries and I needed help. And my, you know, my husband was, he was working and he was, He was keeping our family together financially. So he was helping when he could, but he couldn't, he wasn't home every day.
1: What was it like between you, if you don't mind my asking? He was clearly out working. You were doing whatever you could, not only with an illness yourself, but trying to organize all the other things that Lily needed. How did you cope as a couple?
2: well we've always kind of divided and conquered he would he would help when he could but now he was he was having to take every night and go to work and i just remember making a list of all the things that were necessary for lily during that time but i remember coming out of it the other side, and her wheelchair was too small, and the braces on her legs were too small, and I don't think she'd been to the dentist in the year, and you know all of the things that were routine that I took care of. We just couldn't put those on the calendar because there wasn't anybody overseeing that. Obviously, she, we couldn't keep up with all the therapies that she'd been doing because there wasn't someone to take her. So. Things were adjusted, things that I would normally be doing with Lily. Sometimes a friend of mine would take her and do things with her so that she could see her friends and, and do things that I just wasn't available for.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. care.
1: You've gone on to do some amazing things, notwithstanding all of that. And I want to pivot now a little bit to the work that you're doing for the condition that your daughter is living with, ADCY5, and and the other, other complications of that. When did that start, and how are you doing now?
2: Well, we started the foundation in... 2015, and the diagnosis was in 2013. There weren't very many families diagnosed between 13 and 15. There still wasn't a genetic test available. It still had to happen through whole genome sequencing. And once we went to a a conference, we were invited to present her. Our neurologist is involved in the research, and Lily was presented at the Movement Disorder Congress. There were 4,000 people in the room, and it was the first time that all of these clinicians and researchers were seeing someone with the disease. And the Saturday afterwards, our neurologist called us and said, I need to talk to you, and I need to come see you now. Families are being found because of this presentation, and we have to organize. And so she I remember she came over to her, our home on Saturday, and and she talked to us about it, and she said, we need to figure this out. So within three hours, my husband had designed a website, and we had a phone number on there, and we had a place for families to go, and we slowly started adding to the website and putting the articles that were being written about Lily on there. We were really fortunate that Scripps Research that did the study did a lot of press about it because it was she was the first one diagnosed through whole genome sequencing at their facility. So we agreed to have them share our story so that they could help themselves and share the success they'd had, but also it helped us find other families. And we put those things on the website and we just started slowly building a community and Families contact us all the time. I just got an email today of another new patient, and they contact us very quickly within hours of getting a diagnosis, and we connect them to other families and and to other physicians who have patients so that they can then communicate about what they do for treatments for the symptoms. There's not a cure for the disease, but there are treatments available so that you can lessen the symptoms that people have.
1: Where can people find you and how can they support your cause?
2: There's a website, ADCY5.org. They can support us by donating if they want or by sharing research that they're doing. They can. There are lots of things that people can do to help us as a foundation to help families who are affected by this disease. The, the foundation that we've established supports families first. That's our primary role is to make sure that families who are diagnosed can get information. The second thing that we do is support the clinicians who are diagnosing those families and make sure that they can get in touch with other clinicians. And then the third goal is to help the researchers. And we we really support the researchers who any of the researchers, if they're, if they're new and they're just studying the gene, we wanna support them. And, and support comes in the form of you know not just money, it's also connecting them with other people and connecting them with patients and supporting studies that they wanna do and, and filling their studies with, with patients. But they're the people who wanna help us, we have lots of volunteers who help us, who are on our board. We have people who help us with our website, there, there's all kinds of things that a foundation needs to run and that families need. So people can leave a message on our website if they're interested in helping us.
1: Knowing what you know now, looking back at the family that was in 1998, three things that you think were crucial in helping you get to 2022, what were those three things?
2: I think, pe- I think families need to... Realize that this will be a long endeavor. They're not going to come up with a cure in a year. I think that families who are affected by rare disease should seize the day and do what you can for that day. I think something that kept me going was every night I made sure that when I went to bed I had accomplished at least one thing. And whether that one thing was resolving some kind of service my daughter needed or resolving bills with the insurance company or making sure she had the accommodation she needed in school for that semester. There's so much to do to help a child that has challenges because of a rare disease. One of the things I really stress to young families is it's very overwhelming and it's okay to feel overwhelmed. Just take it one step at a time. Be kind to yourself because this is a big project.
1: Gay Grossman, when John Novak suggested to me that you were a guest on this show, he said that you were an extraordinary person. He he's quite clearly right. It's very clear. In our conversation that not many people could have coped with all that you've had to cope with more than more than anyone should have to cope with we are in awe of all that you do and we would very much like to support your cause in any way we can thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today
2: Thank you for inviting me to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to share information about rare disease in general, but also the disease of ADCY-5-related dyskinesia.
0: The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.